there, there are no words to describe how low you can feel when all three of your kids are missing. It's just, this is truly incredible. I don't really use Facebook much, but I had Facebook on my phone. I, I probably have posted something to Facebook maybe three times in my life and sent out a text or a Facebook message saying, hey, our kids aren't back. Would y'all mind praying? I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, a monthly podcast produced by Backcountry Zero. This episode is sponsored by StatRef, a product from Jackson-based Teton Data Systems. StatRef provides the latest healthcare information to students, researchers, and practicing clinicians. Find us online at statref.com. It's a parent's worst fear. Your children, all three of them, vanish in the wilderness. In 2015, three sisters, Megan, Erin, and Kelsey Andrews Scherer, embarked on what started out as a dream backpacking trip into the Gravant Wilderness. This is part two of our story. Listen to part one to hear how the sisters find themselves trapped by unexpected terrain, facing disappearing trails, endless river crossings, avalanche debris, and dwindling food supplies. In this episode, we talk with the sisters, their parents, and a search and rescue volunteer about how the Jackson Hole community mobilizes to find them. The sisters have no way to call for help and have left few clues to pinpoint their location. Their parents, Eric and Shirley, know their daughters are in trouble. The two older daughters, Megan and Erin, are supposed to be preparing to catch a flight to Switzerland, something they wouldn't want to miss. Shirley decides to keep a prearranged date to meet her daughters at a train station, even though she hasn't heard from them in days. I went all the way, and I know it was kind of weird, but I was like, what if they're there? Even in the back of my head was, what if something really horrible did happen? And they were, like, kidnapped, but one of them got away and said, my mom's going to be here. You know, I don't know. It's like I said, I would be there, so I'm going to be there. I think the ranger said something like 3.5 million acres and and hundreds of trailheads and we don't have time to go explore each trailhead to try to find their car. We've already waited. You know, we didn't call you right away. They're leaving an international flight tomorrow. By late Tuesday, I think they had thought it was serious enough because we knew they had gone off the grid on or around Tuesday or Wednesday, we weren't quite sure which. And we did know they had five days of food. So those were the two things that we did know. The Sunday that we expected them to be leaving, Monday at the latest, also was timed with the amount of food we knew they had. So they had to be coming soon because they wouldn't have done an eight-day trip just to have fun and blow off flight tickets that they'd purchased to Switzerland. They'd stay lookouts from Wyoming to South Dakota to Minnesota to Wisconsin, like all the states on their drive path, all of the authorities were alerted. And I think that's when Arizona. that's when they started to pick it up on the national news. We already kind of knew what was going on, that there were these that there were three sisters who might be out hiking um, somewhere in the in the backcountry and be lost. We, Paige's team, told them to respond to the search and rescue building. Alex Norton has been a volunteer with Teton County Search and Rescue since 2007. As Alex and other volunteers launch a search for the missing sisters, their dad, Eric, flies west to join the operation. Their mom, Shirley, pitches in from their home in Columbus, Ohio. 
I spent most of my time problem solving. Um, I didn't want us both to be on an airplane at the same time in case they needed an answer to something. Um, stuff I talked to the sheriff, I was like, what should they bring? You know, what should I bring? Because I was thinking if they hadn't found the car, I would bring clothing the dogs could smell. And they're like, no, we got enough clothes, we got enough things for the dogs to smell. Bring them some clean clothes, is what he said. And so I went upstairs and I actually, this is literally what I was doing, I was packing clothes that they could get on if they were in casts. Like loose dresses that you could put over the top of a leg cast or over the top of an arm cast if they were broken all over. And then I put it all together in the suitcase and I sat down and I said, you know what? I'm putting these back. They're fine. I'm just going to bring them stuff they like. Megan is the oldest sister. Feeling responsible for her 16-year-old sister, Kelsey, she decides they need to stop hiking, ration their food, and wait for help. The condition her feet are in, I've been walking behind her, watching her limp all day, like, you're going to tear muscles or break your ankle, like, this is not good. I was trained in wilderness first aid when I did some guiding up in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. So I have a wilderness first aid guide, and it has a page on signaling for help. So I'd read, read through that section, thought, okay, well, I guess we could do this. We are going to do our darndest to figure out how we can help people find us. Because in the back of our brains is, I'm not sure we told anybody exactly where we were going. <laughs> we had a pretty good, right. almost 360 yeah, view was... of the valley. So knowing that this was really, if we're going to pick a spot to get stuck and try to signal for help, this is a good one. <laughs> So we got the smoke fire going, we're dragging down trees out of the woods nearby to try to make right angles, and I've like pulled the toilet paper out of our packs and like draped that over stuff because it's white and they can make a right angle with that. Making right angles with rocks and sticks can catch a searcher's eye, since right angles don't typically occur in nature. Erin explains how they chose their locations. We actually we set up right angles on two different mountainsides, so yep. we went over so that we had like two different faces of it. So we had like one facing I don't know north, one facing south. We went all out as much as we could, and we did start rationing our food that day too. So we had a pretty hefty breakfast because breakfast. recovery from eleven hours of hiking the day before. We would split a meal between the three of us for lunch, um, and then have maybe a spoonful of Nutella for dinner, half a granola bar. A handful of almonds or something like that for breakfast, a little bit heftier meal divided between the three of us for lunch. Sometimes we just didn't even have dinner because we were asleep in the tent. One of the rules we made right away was you couldn't talk about food. So we talked about the food the first day and like all the things we wanted to eat when we got back. By day two, not allowed. The very first day as we were heading up the mountainside, um, I think both of us had this thought in our mind, like, oh, we never really signed in anywhere. Yeah, all the other registered like, areas we've or been anything to, like they that. asked for a registration at the trailhead, and there was no registration, so we didn't. Okay, I purchased the map um, with my debit card. My parents have access to that. Maybe, you know, and, and trying to put together some of the puzzle for them in our head, because we, we needed to know that they could track us down. 
And I tried to call the credit card company and it was Aaron's debit card and they would not, they would not give me anything. And so they needed the debit card number, which I didn't know. I had my own, but I didn't have it with me. She and I shared and like I get the same stuff as they have just because when they were in college, it was helpful. And I didn't know how to solve that problem because we wouldn't be home for four more hours, you know. And my friend in the car said, can you call somebody and have them go over to your house and get the card? I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do that. So I called the neighbor, and she ran over. And I'm like, well, you need to go into the safe. She pulled it out, gave me the number. I called them back, and they found it immediately. Once I had that piece of information, then uh, they were able to locate where it was bought and what they bought, and they bought a map. My friend Ted and I had landed Wednesday afternoon late, five, six o'clock, I think, in Jackson. And the sheriff's department met us there um, in town and then took us out to the search and rescue building. I think when I first walked in there, and I think Lori Iverson immediately had introduced herself as like our communications director. I'm shaking my head like, why do I need one of those? Um, And she showed me the whole phone bank that was set up Then they took me over to the maps and showed me where they were searching. And then they started talking about all the people who were volunteering to come in the next day to to do the search and rescue activities and how many people had been out there that day. I was like overwhelmed with amazement on how they had mobilized such a huge group of people. And I almost felt like they were hunting our kids like Jason Bourne. It was an incredible thing to observe. We segment the area into areas where they could have traveled, and then we do a probability analysis of where we think they went, given the information that we have. Um, That probability analysis is done by multiple people so that we can gather kind of a consensus of, of multiple opinions, and then we use that to allocate whatever resources show up. You never know exactly how many people are going to come. I'd say that first night we probably had plus or minus 30. Actually, one of the things that was unique to this was because of the media coverage, because it had started out as a missing persons thing, there was a huge media presence immediately um, at, at the hangar. Sponsored by StatRef, a product from Jackson-based Teton Data Systems. StatRef, the premier healthcare e-resource, enables students, researchers, and practicing clinicians to intuitively cross-search full-text titles, journals, and evidence-based point-of-care tools. With nearly 600 resources within over 50 healthcare disciplines, StatRef provides the latest healthcare information in a customizable and convenient format. Find us online at statref.com. I had stopped at a church, our church on the way home they, before I even got home. My friend had stopped there. They had had a church, like vigil, prayer vigil. The, the church was full. And um, this woman, as I'm leaving, uh, who is just a, a woman I know, came running up to me and she said, I wanted you to know that, you know, I've been praying all day yesterday and I went to bed praying and all through the day I've been praying, but Every time I ask God to send angels to protect them, he answers me. <laughs> and he says, legions. So that's how I fell asleep at night. I'm like, okay, I'm really worried. 
you care about them, you've got legions of angels around them. I know they're hungry. I know they're scared. I know they're wondering. You know, I don't know if they're in pain. I don't know if they're alive. The initial plan there, we inserted three teams by helicopter um, to sort of the high point of the trail system that goes east. One team to search north for a ways um, and then come back to the trailhead. One team to search south and then back to the trailhead. Another team to sort of search west straight back to the trailhead. The search started on Wednesday afternoon. The plan was certainly they were just going to walk out, whatever, however long that took them through the night, they were going to walk out. We also sent a team all the way up the Grovant to walk toward that same trail system from the north um, for a ways and, and so that they would cover all the same. They would, they would meet up with that helicopter-inserted team and cover all that terrain to the north. Then we sent a few teams, I think two teams, to search the High Line Trail area. We sent one team up the High Line and down Little Granite, maybe the other way around, maybe up Little Granite and down the High Line. And then we sent another team up Cache Creek to walk the High Line as far as they could get before the, the turnaround time and then back out. The Andrew sisters aren't the first to struggle with the High Line trails disappearing a little bit on them. But the weather when they got lost was probably a contributing factor to them getting lost and made for made for more difficult searching because it was very socked in it was kind of one of those midsummer storms that didn't necessarily rain super hard but everything is socked in and there's kind of fog through all the all the mountains and you know we couldn't just fly a helicopter around the day before our rescue just rained the whole day um, and of course our Terrible. tent was leaky just kind of collect and then all of a sudden pour in and i'd be sitting there with like a i don't know quick dry towel and like try to collect it and wring it outside and i work for a home repair nonprofit in central appalachia I had worked for them over the summers as a summer job as well and so just thinking about all of the roofs that we had put on for home like homes that had leaky like people who were living in a situation like this all of the time and here I am for a day and it frustrates me and I'm sick of being wet and I'm sick of being cold but this is this is people's lives that was that was a low a low day I think for all of us like we've already missed this flight to Switzerland they've got to know something's going on Tuesday and Wednesday were pretty rough because you kept thinking that people were gonna come for you and then they didn't and so <laughs> And they just dragged on endlessly of like doing the same thing we had been doing and we were just getting more and more tired. We also sent some sheriff's deputies to various trailheads just to provide sort of containment in case they did walk out or there was some contact made um, to interview other people who were in the backcountry in that area. One of the clues that we got from that containment was an outfitter who was up Horse Creek at his hunting camp, you know, getting the camp in order for the, the start of hunting season, came out on that evening, didn't really have anything to report, you know, sort of, you know, sheriff's deputy sitting there at the trailhead. He's sort of like, nah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, 
I don't know, I didn't really see that anything that unusual. I was just up at the camp. It's one of those things where, you know, you run into somebody and he's, he sort of indicated that maybe he had seen something but didn't know what. It was foggy, it could have just been, you know, a cow, who knows, you know, whatever. So we got his information and, and he went home. We didn't get a whole lot of clues. You know, it was starting to become evident that there wasn't really much on that Eastern trail, any indication that they had gone that way. Um, we did talk to the Forest Service trail crews and they were saying they had some crews up that way and in talking to them more further, they hadn't really seen any traffic or anybody. So it was starting to become evident that that might've been a false lead in our initial planning um, as we went through the night. So we had already talked to the outfitter. We had already talked to the Forest Service, kind of gotten an idea um, that, that maybe that Highline Trail area was, was the place to focus our search in the morning. Eric woke me up at like two in the morning. Honestly, it was like two or three in the morning, the text or a phone call, what color are their raincoats? And then the, the parents, were able to describe to us kind of the gear that they probably had. Um, most importantly, the white jacket that one of the one of the girls had. That next day, we had volunteers, or we had we had help from the park. We had help from Sublette County, and so there were a bunch of people down there being inserted by helicopter, basically to search downhill. I was surprised at, at how many people had come from the contiguous states in the area to participate in the search and rescue, and. I said, well, because, you know, I, I have a full-time job. I, I work pretty hard, and, like, I, I wouldn't take off three or four days normally in the middle of my day, just drop everything I'm doing, like, see ya, I'm going to do search and rescue. But it seems to be that that's the environment that's okay. that's okay out there, which is a really cool thing, because that's another thing we learned about Jackson. Like, anybody would just, like, close their shop doors to go and do search and rescue, like, forget it this is more important and that's what we'll do the weather in the morning was sort of similar to the day before so they're waiting for the the fog to lift in order to insert people by helicopter in looking at the clues that had been put together from the night before once we got everybody in the field it became evident that that we needed to call that outfitter back to ask him about whether or not he saw a white jacket because a white jacket is a very distinct thing to find in the wilderness. There's not a lot of white jackets out there. Apparently he was thinking the same thing because he actually called into the sheriff's office at, a, at about that same time where we were talking about, you know, we need to find his number and call him back and said, I think what I saw was probably the, the missing girls. And so we talked to him, we said, hey, where were you when you saw this? What direction were you looking? About how far away do you think it was? You know, being a hunting guide, he had a very good sense of the distance and was able to say it was, I forget exactly what the distance is, but it was this far away and I was looking basically due west from the camp. We were able to look at the map, see where, you know, plot where the camp was, look due west to, you know, create a coordinate for the helicopter to fly to. They said over the radio traffic and my friend Ted and I had heard this, said we have a spot, a spotting of someone in a white raincoat. And so that's the first that we had heard we started to get a little bit excited, but like it's one person, I want you to find three people. And knowing that we didn't want to split up, um, there's no way I wanted to split up just because I didn't want to leave yeah. Kelsey on her own. So one of us was going to need to stay with Kelsey. 
like we had tested out the whistle walking down to the river you can't hear a whistle for very far at all because I think by the time you guys actually got down to the river to get water I couldn't hear the whistle anymore so just knowing that like injuries happen more when you're tired and if you know if Aaron went exploring down this river and got injured there'd be no way to know you know and then I'd have to leave Kelsey to go find her and all three of us could get separated and I guess weighing that with knowing that we'd heard aircraft like it wasn't that we hadn't heard aircraft we'd seen candy wrappers on the ground we know people are here <laughs> there was a on the hillside that we set our tent up on there was a lemonade packet that hadn't been opened and we drank it the next day it was yeah. great but <laughs> yeah so we knew like people were in the area we knew that the granite highline trail was just across this valley somewhere it was the fourth of july weekend there have got to be other people out walking that trail right <laughs> You know, if we're starting signal fires and just sitting here and, you know, doing our best to get people's attention, somebody's going to see us, right? And that's a much better option than the three of us trying to split up. And I guess also just knowing, like, we did have a limited food supply and hiking another 11-hour day trying to find trails, not being on the trail, it's exhausting. And so just knowing that our food supply would run short and we'd run short on energy so much quicker if we were scavenging around trying to find a trail it was an incredibly hard decision for me because there's that sense of I failed I guess like I should be able to figure this out I've figured it out before your whole life you're taught like if there's a problem you solve it you don't wait and like expect somebody else to solve your problem for you if you get yourself into it you better get yourself out of it I think that was why the decision was so hard but the reason I stuck to it as a good idea was because of Kelsey and knowing that I couldn't guarantee her safely out. And definitely just a lot of sense of responsibility. Um, She's nine years younger than you, six years younger than me, and um, came out here to have fun. And we're the adults in this, and, and we have to make the smart decision even if it's not the decision that we, would, we like. would like to make. Yeah. I think it was the second helicopter flight. So one team had already been inserted, and then the second helicopter flight were like, actually go check this place out first, and we were able to find them, find them that quickly on that on that second helicopter flight. That morning, their mom Shirley is on a flight to Jackson Hole. And then when I landed, turned my you know my phone back on, I got a hundred bleeps and alert messages and I was like oh my gosh no but you know I was I don't know whether I'd be happy or scared and my phone rang and I picked it up and it was the girl that had been Megan's friend that had really been helping she said that they had found them and I asked all and it was all of them. Then the next communication was um, positive confirmation so that was the next, hey, we've, we've got three daughters, we've confirmed their identities, they're all safe. And then when we finally did hear the helicopter, we all like jumped out of the tent and we're waving our solar Bolted. blanket and we're just running around like our brain jackets are brightly colored and Aaron's like jogging up this steep cliff mountain thing, like trying to get on top of it to see the helicopter and it flies away and we're like, <laughs> and then it, we're all freezing because it's cold and wet. 
and we have all of our warm clothes in the tent again trying to keep them dry and so I'm like I'm getting back in the tent and Aaron stands out there for a while I think <laughs> waiting for the helicopter to come back and he's like we'll hear it <laughs> um, so the next time we did hear it we all jump out of the tent again and we're waving our stuff and it kind of flew by it again kind of flew by and it circles away and we're just like no this is not okay but we know at that point that it's looking for us so i think then we started packing our things it yeah. flew straight it over flew, us that flew, time and yeah and they come over and they're like so how are you are you okay and you know identify us and everything like that i think they were just super positive too about like you you know like you did the right thing like Look at all this gear you have. You're pretty prepared. That's good, you know. And so just finding the positives in the situation we were stuck in, I think just helped me to remain calm and less like, ah, you know, like I, I really failed on this one. My closest to breaking down was when I saw my dad. And I was like, I am so sorry. Like, I was the one responsible for all of, like, your two other two kids, and I got us all stuck. I'm so sorry, and I didn't tell you where we were going, and, I mean, I really messed up. Still, I, those what-ifs of could, it, could I have gotten us out of there, and the what-ifs of, I mean, the whole trip, like, should I have noticed earlier, um, and the hiking we have done this week of, like, okay, so these other wilderness areas are so well marked and the trails are really easy to find. And what did I, what was I thinking deciding that that was okay for, you know, three days? <laughs> the other part that was really amazing about it is when we come out and hearing about all the people who were so involved in figuring out exactly where we were, it was a huge, like a huge thing. And we had, we had no idea. We had originally planned for a four day or four a night. four night, five, like very short fifth day backpacking trip. It was definitely not supposed to be a full fifth day. Uh, and it turned into a 10 day backpack or 10 days backcountry with the 10th day we were found on at like 10, 10.30 in the morning. We didn't want a lot of attention. And I think after the girls were rescued, Lori said, well, there's going to be some news media here. They're going to want to do an interview. So I'm thinking the Jackson television station, maybe just like some surrounding areas, because we had no idea that this was a national news story at all. With our dad later, and we're driving to the search and rescue building, um, and he, I don't know, they're, they're, they're trying to lightly explain that it's a little bit bigger than maybe we think it is. Um, and our dad tells us we have a hashtag. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, you're kidding, right? And, and like, he wasn't kidding, of yeah. course. Um, well, and then I, when, uh, I think when we were first talking after we had landed, I just said, you know, this is so embarrassing because I'm not somebody who likes being in the limelight whatsoever and like we were talking about you know to me that I couldn't figure out how to get us out of there on my own like that's embarrassing I don't want people to know about mm -hmm. that and then to get down there and realize like there are all these people out looking for us like okay okay <laughs> and then to realize like that it's a social media thing and all my friends are gonna know so then that I mean, I was just thoroughly embarrassed. Like, yeah. I wish nobody had to know about this. I and wanted to just, like, 
dig a hole or get a flight to Chile real fast. <laughs> Just get out of here. And so I talked to the the, the reporters a little bit, um, but then you know when we got to the hotel that night finally and got ourselves cleaned up, we turned on the news and we saw ourselves on national news. Fortunately, when when we made reservations at a hotel, my friends had made the reservations under his name. So they couldn't find us. Nobody, the reporters in town couldn't find out where we were staying. It was the bar. Yeah, we went, I had a drink Wednesday night at the bar and and I told Ted like, hey, I'll buy the beers. You've done all this stuff for me. You've got me out here to Jackson. And so I bought a couple of beers, signed the the credit card slip. And then the bartender came over and goes, are you the dad of the three girls? Like, yeah. He goes, welcome to our hotel. Let us know if there's anything yeah, we can do. So nice. All the food and drinks are on us. We'll take care of you while you're here. Um, they're just overwhelmingly kind to us. So yeah. that was pretty cool. They're super nice. But that's what that's what Jackson was all about. Like everywhere we turned, all the people that we met, the search and rescue people, the people that took care of us at the hotels. It was it was just a pretty amazing thing to to have a small town like that kind of envelop you and help you out and go search for your kids. I think we've now written down the license plates of our cars and and oh, we we okay. have a lot of fun with raincoat colors now because that's a fun family a story. Fun joke. And, yeah. and a fun joke that, that we have. And maybe that's a good tip for hikers mm-hmm. to not only just like leave good information behind of where you're actually going to hike in, but the color of your raincoat's always good. So. <laughs> wear something Yeah, wear stable. something bright. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't want to have to wait any longer for us to find them. I'm sure they would have, you know, and I'm just so proud of her for sticking to her guns and saying, no, I'm doing the right thing. It doesn't look right, but it's the right thing and we're gonna do it this way. In hindsight, we we kind of surrounded the whole area where they were in that first operational period, that first evening, um, without actually getting to where the, the, the that sort of middle part of the Highline Trail where they were lost. You know, on Friday morning, once it's all over and you see people around town, they're like, oh, yeah, that's the first place I would have looked is right where they were when they know what the answer is. But when the information you're given is that, you know, two or three girls of the same age were potentially seen on this trail system to the east, you know, that obviously is where you send your resources in the first hand. And a lot of searching is very much scientific theory of you learn as much from your disproving of theories as you as you you know it's over once you find them you you gather all of the information from failing their approach of trying to make themselves visible but stay in a single spot and i don't know exactly what they did before how what other things they tried before they got to that time but it it was a fairly successful approach and is certainly something that we do teach people when they really have themselves turned around to the point that they don't that they don't know where they're going and you know they're tired and and they're out of resources and ultimately that's what got them found the fact that they were in the same place that the guy had seen them the afternoon before is what made it was allowed us to go to them to them immediately they're not the first people to get lost in that area they're probably not the last people that will get lost in that area Um, and given the weather conditions the approach they took was an approach that was that was going to get them found this podcast is produced by backcountry zero a vision of the teton county search and rescue foundation 
to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.